Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. My name is Rose, and I'm absolutely fascinated by what lies beneath the deep sea. Which is why I am so happy to say that our next guest is Dr. Nerida Wilson. Nerida is a marine molecular biologist obsessed with sea slugs. She stopped by to chat about cute sea creatures and where in the world research can take you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So to start off with, what do you actually do? (laughs) It's an excellent question. I do lots of different things and every day is always different. So it could be ordering things for the lab, it could be help someone design a particular experiment, it could be trying to catch up on some background of some particular science question, um, all kinds of things. And so it depends on the day. Absolutely. And what is your technical title? Like if you were, well, we don't board planes anymore, but if you're boarding a plane and you had to write it down and summarize it, what is your official title? So I'm Dr. Nerida Wilson, and I'm the manager of the Molecular Systematics Unit at the Western Australian Museum. That is so cool, but so niche. (laughs) It's definitely a bit weird. (laughs) And how did you find yourself in this position? Yeah, and I think find myself is a great sort of segue (laughs) to how career pathways sort of evolve. You know, I was always interested in the evolution and systematics and taxonomy of organisms, mostly benthic marine organisms. What are they? Uh, ones that live on the bottom, mostly. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like yeah. deep sea or just anywhere oh, any, on the bottom? Yeah, just any. Yeah, so sea slugs are my passion from way back. but So they can crawl around. They don't have to be, like, fixed on the spot to get my attention. Um, but I always liked really broad things so I I like lots of different things I'm curious about lots of things and so traditionally in a museum you're kind of a specialist on one thing and so this job is fantastic because it allows me to work on a ton of different animals and I love that and that's really unusual in a museum. Why did you pick sea slugs? And how many times do you say slee slugs? Because that's really hard to say. <laughs> well, I normally, normally call them nudibranchs. Oh, good. Yeah, so that helps with that problem. <laughs> um, I actually had a moment with a sea slug. Ooh. They actually picked me. So, Aww. yeah, it's quite cute. So I was always interested in collecting shells. And so when I was a kid, I'd walk along the beach and find shells and try and identify them. And then I got keen to sort of get a bit proactive and instead of waiting for them to wash up I would go in and get them so I learned how to scuba dive when I was in high school and then once I started seeing them as animals and what they were doing I was like completely besotted just totally in love with them and then it was probably embarrassingly about a year after I started diving when I saw my first sea slug and obviously in shell books they don't spend a lot of time showing them or talking about them because they don't have a shell (laughs) hence being a slug so uh you know I didn't know too much about them and then I saw my first one I was just totally mesmerized and I suddenly had all these questions like are its colors changing like an octopus does or is it just sort of tricking my eye as it moves and what does it do what does it eat all these things so I came out of that dive just completely curious and just haven't really stopped asking questions about sea slugs ever since I mean I already have a hundred questions about sea slugs so I'm quite (laughs) pleased that I can ask them all of them and in particular I mean, I mean, to start off with, because we can't see them right now, obviously it's a podcast, what do they look like and I guess how can people get an idea of what they're a bit like just going forward? Well, one of the amazing things about them is that they have a huge diversity of body plans. So some look a bit like land slugs. They have 
two little antennae at the front for chemosensory reception. So they sometimes they have eyes, but mostly they use chemicals to sense their way around. Um, some of them have gills on the back, which you won't see on land slugs. Um, but other ones have all these long flappy bits on the back that are called serrata that sort of help increase their surface area so that they can respire more efficiently. So, and you said they come in lots of different colours. Oh, the colours are crazy. Yeah, almost every combination you can think of. Oh, Do they live all over the world or are they kind of only in niche pockets? No, they're pretty much found in all oceans, including quite abundant in Antarctica. Uh, I think there's no record of freshwater nudibranchs, so that's the kind of unicorn. We may never find those. There might be physiological reasons why they can't survive in freshwater, but, um, yeah, definitely marine slugs. That's so cool. Are, there, are they little, like, land slugs, or are they larger? Also both of those things. So oh. some are tiny, tiny and stay tiny for their whole life, um, and others get big, like... It depends on how you define a sea slug. So some sea hares are like half a metre, metre long. Whoa. Like really, really big. Yeah, and other ones sort of, you know, 20, 30 centimetres is quite big. The, the average size, I would say, is probably one or two centimetres. And they still caught your eye? Yeah. Oh, they're like crazy colours, like bright orange and blue. I mean, honestly, you That's can't incredible. go past that. <laughs> is the diff? Okay, I don't know if this is a silly question, but... Is the difference between a sea snail and a sea slug only its home? Um, hmm. Well, that's a tricky question because how we define sea slugs is also a bit tricky. Um. So, you know, we, we're trying to build a tree of life and understand how all different animal lineages are related to each other. And sea slugs are part of that big tree that involves gastropods and sea snails. But it's not just a tiny single group. So there are some shelled slugs and things like that. So it's a bit complex. But as I said, they have a diversity of body plans. So yeah. some have little internal shells and some oh. have external shells and some are fully shellless. And yeah, you name it, they do it. That's so cool. Have you gotten to do much exploring, looking for them? If they do exist all over the world, have you gotten to go and see overseas sea slugs? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the exploration and discovery side of things has always sort of motivated me. Um, so I think even when I was a PhD student, I took six months off to go and work in Indonesia and really like, you know, get right into that high point of diversity. I mean, Australia, to be honest, is pretty diverse. So yeah, okay. it wasn't all that different, but it was exciting to go and, and look and see, you know, kind of different animals that I hadn't seen before. And I grew up in Melbourne, um, but I did my PhD in Brisbane. So I'd sort of already seen different faunas, temperate cold water animals, and then more tropical ones. And yeah, so definitely has always been a driving factor. Anywhere I go, I want to see some different slugs. When did you start getting into working in museums in particular? Because I feel like that's a bit of a it's a pretty cool job to say you work in a museum. <laughs> um, I started volunteering um, when I was an undergraduate student. So I think we had um, a subject where people from the museum came out and taught one part of it. And so I just approached them then saying, oh, you know, I'd really love to learn more about museums. And I think I was at first sort of editing database entries and things like that and then sorting samples. But just, yeah, trying to understand museums as a workplace it's kind of yeah hard to get to know it's you, know, you don't get sort of exposed to that back behind the scenes sort of part of of what museums do like we tend to go and visit them and see the public exhibit display parts but but what happens in the background I think is fascinating 
Yeah, well, that was something we were talking about before we started recording, which was that I've been lucky and I've got to see the facilities behind the scenes at a museum. But for anyone who hasn't had that experience, or even for me, because I have lots more questions, how does a museum operate in your experience? Like, what kinds of teams are there? So typically they'll have curators or research scientists with a specialisation in a particular animal group. And obviously every museum can't cover everything so you know across Australia you'll have a, an accumulation of knowledge um, but you you might have a curator of mollusks but because mollusks you know there's snails and slugs there's cephalopods and octopus and things like that you'll have someone that'll have expertise in one particular group mm-hmm. but they'll probably have a broad knowledge across other ones and they might take care of a much broader collection than what they actually research and, and work on so yeah so you'll have curators collection managers um all different kinds of people in that space. And then nowadays we tend to have um, molecular uh, DNA kind of units as well that help get more data to understand those animals. What's your office space like? Um, I have an office in the library, so oh, it's really, nice. it's nice, yes. I like to walk in there and hear that little hush of books. Thinking a bit more about your earlier study, what kind of study pathway did you have to take to be able to have your job that you have now yeah and I certainly never started out thinking I'm going to work in a museum yeah, okay. you know when I was young I knew I was interested in the oceans and I didn't really know anyone who was a scientist so it wasn't even aware it was kind of a, a pathway that was open to me so I just knew I loved the ocean and I loved those animals and was super curious so I think when I did work experience in year 10, um, I did it um, part of the time at a fisheries institute and they just said to me, look, you should try and stay really general when you do a science degree. Mm. There's no need to, you know, go to a university where it's a, a specialisation in marine science, you know, just do general chemistry, math, science and biology and, and stay open to what might interest you later on. That was great advice. Yeah, so you ended up doing that? Yeah, so I did a general science degree uh, at the University of Melbourne and then I moved later on up to Brisbane to do an honours year and then a PhD at the University of Queensland. And how long have you been in Perth since? Well, after that I then have moved all over the place. So I was in Adelaide for a short period of time at the museum there. Then I took a postdoc in Alabama for a couple of years. Oh my and then was working in California for a few years and then... I eventually moved back to Australia to work at the Australian Museum and then I've been at the Western Australian Museum since 2014. So always a lot of travel, a lot of slugs to see. That's so cool. (laughs) So there's lots of research going on all over the place into sea slugs. Yeah, so it's... I think I would sort of frame what I'm interested in in being evolution and and understanding the tree of life yes and that is just drives and frames so many biological questions almost all of it properly so wherever you go there's you can tend to you know create an environment where you can look at those types of research questions you might have to bargain and barter a little bit like my first postdoc in Alabama was actually about Antarctic work Oh, well, yeah, literally. So I think while most people, you know, are excited about that environment, it was the one place in the world I was not that interested in going to because I hate the cold. Oh, yeah. I hate the cold. And so I was sort of like, oh, my gosh, I really need a job. And this sounds kind of interesting. And so I said, look, can I work on Antarctic nudibranchs? And so we struck a deal. And so, yeah, the rest is history. 
I did, yeah. So pretty much quite soon out of my PhD, um, there were two field trips um, during that postdoc um, that I got to participate in, which was wonderful. And um, yeah, it was a lot different to what I expected. I think I didn't really, I don't know whether I did any homework or not, but I was sort of expecting these flat ice cliffs, you know, that sort of classic picture that you see. And where I was working, which was over on the Antarctic Peninsula area, it's all like mountains and incredible, beautiful scenery and these rocky mountains going into the ocean. It was just, yeah, just mind blowing. Did you have to dive there? No, thank God. Yeah, because I was going to say, I didn't know that that was possible. It is. Like lots of people dive for research there, actually. They must have good wetsuits. Way tougher than I am. Yeah. How did you go down then? Uh, well, we use trawling equipment oh, to cool. sample the seafloor. Yeah. There must be quite a lot of cool tech involved with doing any kind of, like you said, you need to look at what's on the seafloor surface. How deep have you managed to have a look? So Antarctica is a little bit different because the continental shelf, which is kind of that land that's attached to the continent, obviously, um, Around the rest of the world, it tends to be about two or 300 metres deep. But in Antarctica, because there's been periods of a lot of ice, it's actually pushed it down. And so it's a lot, the continental shelf is a lot deeper there. So, you know, even though we were sampling animals that are considered shelf associated, um, we were still sampling down to 800, 1,000 wow. metres in some places. So whereas in other continents, that would be deep sea sort of environment so yeah it's just a bit different have you gotten to do much deep sea exploration i'm fascinated with it yeah (laughs) (laughs) i have i've been really really lucky um i got the opportunity to go down in the submersible alvin (gasps) pretty soon out of my phd and that was just incredible like got to dive on hydrothermal vents it was just honestly mind-blowing and what does it feel like to be inside that thing yeah it's it is this metal sphere right with this sort of propeller and instruments on the outside um it was weird like I definitely wasn't sure if I was going to feel claustrophobic or not and and you do little you know um familiarization things you go in there and learn how to use the instruments and things so you get a chance to sit in there before it's your turn um and that felt fine so I was thinking oh that's okay Uh, It feels really weird when it gets picked up from the ship um, and when it sits just on the surface of the water because it doesn't feel very natural and you feel a bit, maybe a little bit seasick and I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be really terrible. But then as soon as you start descending, it's completely stable and quiet and beautiful and just, yeah, I think, I don't know, we were down for somewhere between five and eight hours and it felt like half an hour. Like it went so quickly. It was amazing. And then I was lucky enough to repeat that experience in 2018. So it was kind of nice to do it like earlier in my career and then um, much later on as well. So that time um, we were diving on seamounts and methane sea barriers. So, yeah, it was a different environment again. So, yeah, I feel just so lucky. Um, and I think particularly on that first dive, I think just looking out that little window, looking on the seafloor, the the very first thing that I saw was a, a crinoid, which is a group that I really love, these feather stars, so a relative of a sea star. And, uh, you know, the lights were on it and we're just sitting still, checking all the instrumentation, and I was just staring at it like my eyes were just gobbling it up and it was just this moment of realising that no other human eyes had ever seen that before because we were diving on a completely new site and it was just, yeah, so special. I, yeah, was really, really humbled by that. When you're doing... 
I guess, surveys down there or looking for whatever you need, how are you collecting data and information? Because you can't really grab it and take it up. That would be a huge shame, I'm sure. So how does it work? Well, we do pick things up. Really? Yes. Oh, that's kind of exciting. <laughs> yeah. So there's lots of different ways of exploring the deep sea now. So sometimes you are just using a camera and, and taking imagery and you might um, quantitatively measure how many animals are in this particular area. Um, but often they're very interdisciplinary projects. So you might have someone there that's measuring conductivity and temperature and oxygen, you know, doing things that I don't do. <laughs> uh, and then you'll have biologists who actually want to sample the, the animals and to try and actually understand them. I obviously care about it coming from a biologist background, but why do you think people and maybe the broader public should care about this evolution and evolutionary history of organisms? Yeah, it's a great question. I think people, I'll, I'll back it up a little bit there because I think people get that more than they get taxonomy. Mm. And so I think people usually like, oh, it sounds so dry and boring and what is it that you're actually doing? And the thing is, it's the most fundamental of human drives to be curious about what's around you. And so people always want to know, oh, what's that in my backyard? What's that bird? How many species live in this area? And, you know, how many species are in Australia? How many species went extinct in the bushfires? And we can't answer those questions unless we actually have, you know, named or counted or measured those species. And so it's just a weird human drive to want to know how many things are here. So... I think when you kind of talk about it like that, people are like, oh, yeah, actually, that I do want to know that. Um, but the process of taxonomy can be quite tricky. Um, and because it's often not a quick answer, it feels like it's hard to understand the time scales that go into that. And that's because the process, during that process, you have to actually refer to really old literature and you have to refer to a type specimen. Mm. And so for every species that's named, we select a type or sometimes there's a number of types and they're like standards so it's like all every time you want to identify a species you need to refer back to that type yeah, okay. and for Australia a lot of the early collected species and, and specimens are actually not held in Australian museums oh. so there's a lot in the British Museum things like that so it's, it's a lot of process to be able to compare that and be like oh well now I've actually seen that standard and compared it to what I'm looking at here, I think it's actually different or mm. it is the same. So it is a really long process just to identify something or to understand if it does need a new name. And then there's sort of like some quasi-legal recommendations about how you go about that process. But the naming of it is really fun. But, yeah, it's not a quick thing. Yeah. And in this day and age and funding cycles and things, things need to be really quick. So taxonomy is quite hard to support um, in that long-term sort of process, but terribly important. Yeah. Have you ever gotten to identify new species? We find new species all the time. Ah, that's so exciting. So, yeah, I know. And it, it's easy to forget that, especially in Australia where 
there's so much discovery still to happen and we can go out, I can find a new species off the coast here probably every time I go. If I really look, it's actually sometimes more discouraging because it feels like you're (laughs) never going to get it done, right? (laughs) So there's lots of um, initiatives to try and say, hey, we need to get on top of this. We need to invest more. We need to try and, you know, know all of our species in the next generation. So it's really nice to be part of um, that sort of forward thinking movement of we need to get this done. But yeah. some days you just want to put the doona over your head because it's really hard. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, because I imagine if we didn't know, otherwise we're at risk of kind of losing the species before we even know that they're there potentially. Absolutely. Oh, that would break my heart. I think heart. that's happening. It's probably happening right now. It probably has happened. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever gotten to name a species? Yes. I mean, oh! that, is, that is kind of what we do. <laughs> that is so exciting. Yeah. How do you pick a name? Yeah, that's sometimes really fun. Sometimes there's a feature on the animal that is really obvious and, you know, this animal has these bright pink spots and you need to find the Latin or the Greek to, you know, basically translate bright pink spots into a a name. Um, Sometimes you name it for where you've found it. So if it's um, found in Western Australia, you might call it Westraliensis or, you know, there's different ways to, to make those words fit. But you can name it after people. You might want to recognise a person who first found it or someone who's made an important contribution or, yeah, there's it's totally endless. Yeah, it's amazing. This is quite a creative part of the process. It's nice. Yeah, no pressure though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> break things up just a little bit I'm going to ask some of some of our questions from the rest of the particle team so they're a little bit uh, (laughs) a little bit strange but (laughs) hopefully I don't know maybe they'll make you laugh do sea slugs have a use for humans (laughs) (laughs) I love that (laughs) yeah what could we what what benefits could we gain from the sea slugs? Um, yeah, I'm not sure if sea slugs can benefit much from us, but um, yeah, they're actually incredibly important, I think, moving forward because they tend to generate a lot of um, chemical defences because they don't have a shell. Um, so they're an interesting, uh, and most marine organisms are a potential source of new drugs or new ways of treating things. So that's definitely important for us. Um, not sure what we can do for them except for protect them. Yeah, and admire them and tell them they're pretty. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's a very big fan base on social media for nudibranchs. They don't need any more help. Oh, they've got great. it under control. <laughs> I'm definitely going to look some up after this, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> can you eat them? Uh, I wouldn't advise it. Yeah. But there are some places in the world where they do eat them. I haven't tried them myself. It would probably feel wrong, right? I reckon they'd just be spicy. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, there's definitely a risk. Any animal that's creating special chemicals, I wouldn't really recommend to eat. Um, There are some places in the Pacific where they eat sea hare eggs. But, um, yeah, there's... There's some big sea hairs that wash up here that are quite toxic to dogs. And I think as vertebrates, I feel like we should definitely not be eating those things. Yeah. <laughs> we have plenty of other choices. That's probably a good call. Popping in just with a little bit of context. Earlier this year in April, a team of marine scientists were up at Ningaloo Reef in the northern part of Western Australia, where they found what is believed to be the longest deep sea animal. It got lots of press, both in Australia and internationally, but I'll let Nerida tell you the rest of the story. 
Recently, I saw in the news that the world's, in inverted commas, longest creature I can see, Grinchy, was discovered. That got a lot of press. And I it really got me thinking about how I feel like on the day-to-day, scientists and people going out and researching, you just go out and you do your job. Then all of a sudden, ABC, like BBC, they're all knocking on your door trying to talk to you. Was that weird? Um, a little bit. I think we're all surprised at just how excited people were getting about this particular siphonophore. And I think that was partly also because we were there to study the animals that live on the bottom. And that's what we're all passionate about. And we kind of just stumbled into this thing as we commuted back to the surface. Oh. So it wasn't one of the animals that we personally were most excited about. So it was a little bit annoying that I was sucking up all that press. No, <laughs> no, it was very, very cool. It was a really amazing moment. And um, yeah, just a very strange looking animal, a big spiral hanging out there in the water column and just looking very otherworldly. Yeah, uh, yeah it was super cool. What was it? So it's a siphonophore, so it's related to corals and anemones and okay. sea, sea jellies and things like that. Yeah. It just, it really did blow up everywhere talking about it. Did you find, how did you find the conversation around the organism itself? Were people still excited when they found out it wasn't like a Loch Ness monster type creature? Because world's longest creature or organism is a little confusing I think if you didn't see images of it and it kind of looked like this big long worm hey like this big yeah. long curling thing where what was the response like when you're like it's actually this different kind of organism yeah look I think it's it's our job to try and help people relate and and tell them what's closely related tell them the one here's a siphonophore that you might have encountered like a, a um Portuguese man of war or blue okay. we call it blue bottle I think on the east coast so you know try and help them understand one that they might have seen but the really confusing part was the fact that it's a colonial animal mm. and so you know I think always those things provide opportunities to broaden people's understanding of animals that are out there so yeah it was, it was helpful in that sense to sort of reframe and 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 try and it was a weird animal like I'm not going to disagree with yeah, people it's it totally weird, weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a siphonophore expert so I you know I had to do a little little reading myself straight away so yeah kidding. yeah but luckily you know we there's a broad science network and I've worked with a siphonophore expert on mollusks before and so yeah there's always phone a friend oh, goodness <laughs> for that. we like good teamwork and science exactly exactly with that in mind, I have an extra question from the particle team. If that's the longest organism, what is the shortest? <laughs> <laughs> or the shortest you've seen? Yeah. So, yeah, I, you'd probably have to check Wikipedia or Guinness Book of Records or something for the genuinely smallest. I mean, there are some really tiny animals that are, yeah very very tiny i do also like micro gastropods so tiny tiny animals that live amongst the sand grains so uh, there is a little kind of a slug it looks more like a worm but it's a type of slug that crawls around between the sand called rhodope and i'm a total passionate fan of rhodope And last year we found the first one in Western Australia. So, That's was, so cool. it was one of those moments where I was just screaming with glee, like so excited. Um, yeah, so I have been known to 
go diving and then get really excited about a patch of gravel and then I (laughs) put that gravel in bags and bring it back with me like a totally normal person and then spend hours looking through it Mm. how did you so like if you're going out and you're grabbing these patches of gravel to have a look and see what's in it why would you pick a particular patch like is there something about it that you're like oh there might be something in that Look, honestly, think of a water diviner. Yeah, okay. No, no, it, it's oh. just a feeling. No, no, there's no science behind that. No, just kidding. Um, you know, we'll be part of it is, you know, you're looking for something that might have a lot of um, water movement through it. So it's providing oxygen, well-sorted, big pieces. If it's very fine sediment, it's probably a bit suffocating and there's not a lot of oxygen. But having said that, I sometimes pick a bit of gravel that I would never want to like my instinct is not to look at it so I should look at it because otherwise you're kind of directing your discoveries and you can't do that so you have to stay open so I will pick both attractive looking gravel and non-attractive looking gravel (laughs) and sort them separately (laughs) to try and learn I like that a lot it sounds like you get to go on a lot of adventures ah look I think it seems like that. Um, They're definitely the times that motivate me to keep going. But honestly, a marine biologist spends most of the time behind a computer at a desk like almost everyone else in the world. Um, So it's, you know, if you love being outdoors, I wouldn't say that doing science is a pathway to that. But I think it balances what you do. And, and science is a lot more than just discovery. You know, there's a whole process of, you know, framing a question, um, getting resources to go and actually answer that question, getting the samples that you need, you know, getting the data, analysing it, publishing it. So there's a whole process that needs to be gone through. And, you know, being out in the field is just one tiny part of that. It motivates you. But, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more to keep going for. What questions are you investigating at the moment? Way too many. (laughs) (laughs) Are you someone that just like thinks of a question and just like has to know the answer in your day-to-day life in general? Like everything is interesting to me. It is my total curse and yeah, it keeps me very busy. So saying no is the hardest thing for me and I'll probably never really learn that very well. (laughs) Well, I have seen that even if you just Google your name, you have so many papers and things that you've written or co-authored. How do you stay motivated? Do you get tired? I'm always really tired. Yeah, I believe you. <laughs> yeah, I try not to think about that too much. <laughs> do you have yeah. any strategies in place to like balance things or are you not very good at balancing things? Um, I think I'm getting a lot better at that, yeah. And it's definitely – I really enjoy um, – supervising students and that's the sort of teaching part of what I do and I'm always trying to teach them like find an exercise that you really like and practice turning off and practice taking a break and because you need to learn how to do that now because it gets harder and harder as your career progresses so I do think it's super important to be able to I'm going to say try to have some balance um but yeah, easier said than done and uh, harder to learn later. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think, um, I think it's really important to stay healthy um, and just get out. And being out in nature is what inspires us. So that is usually where you feel most comfortable and restored. And yeah, so I definitely try and do that as much as I can. What are some of the misconceptions about your career or the job that you have? Oh, that I spend all my time out in the field doing yeah. fabulous things. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a tiny part and it's it can be really hard that 
you're at a desk for most of the time and then suddenly you have to go out and be like superhuman fit you know most of us get a little bit lazy or sidetracked about that and so yeah that's one of the motivations to to try and stay fit and healthy so that I can do that field work you know really easily and and focus on the job at hand so yeah that gets harder as you get older <laughs> I still really love diving and I've had periods during my career where I've gotten a little bit tired of it and it's just a bit too hard or too exhausting and um but then I yeah, I just find my passion for it again and it's like I can't get enough. So, yeah, things like that wax and wane throughout, I think. Yeah, you can't expect to love it every single moment of every single day. Exactly, exactly. And there are times, and honestly, I think having a network of good colleagues and friends, and honestly, I mean, most of my friends are scientists and, you know, they understand um, that kind of job and lifestyle and that you might just disappear for months on end or whatever so yeah that yeah. is kind of crazy it's not very it's not a lifestyle conducive to sort of having family or pets or you know keeping in touch with people sometimes so yeah being mobile particularly in the earlier stages of your career is important having said that if you've got constraints where you can't do that it do, it's not impossible mm. I totally don't that's not a discouraging factor but um but being open to being flexible and moving around is is helpful it will give you more opportunities but again you know we've just had this crazy pandemic where we've all changed the way we work so quickly we've had to and so I think that provides some opportunities to suggest some creative solutions if you know try and make things happen and and make opportunities work for you better yeah exactly did you find during lockdown and things were you in a on the computer stage or were you in a phase where you needed to go out and do field work well, it's an interesting point. So we had an expedition where we found this this large siphonophore. Um, we actually left right at the beginning of when COVID was happening. Wow. And so, yeah, so the whole world changed while we were on a ship. Whoa. And, like, obviously we're staying in touch and things like that. So we, we knew what was happening, but I think the idea of something like that is so weird when you're not part of it yeah you know we're on a ship we were all healthy there was no social distancing like yeah and and when you're on a ship because you're all touching the same handrails and things like that it is like colds will always go through a ship really quickly and things like that so we knew that if if someone had brought it on board we would have all been quite sick but luckily and we were out for about four weeks so we knew that we're all healthy Mm. we're probably like we're joking about being the the last the last hugs in Australia you know (laughs) it was really strange and so we had to really um focus a bit when we came back and we went sort of you know off the ship we came in at Broome and went you know within 15 minutes we're at an airport and so we had to wise up and be smart about touching things and, and just get with the program really, wow. really quickly. So we had some good briefings and things like that to help people just get into the right mindset. But it was it was pretty weird coming back and being like, oh, how do I go grocery shopping? Yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit strange. And everyone but, else um, had probably gotten used to it by then. Absolutely. It was their new normal <laughs> and we were just like, whoa. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. So it was a very it was very interesting watching it unfold from a safe distance. I'd love to know more about some of these dives and going deep into the sea because it's I think it's something that's just so difficult to imagine if you haven't done it. So if you're in a submersible and you're down in the ocean, how much can you actually see? It's a really good point because every viewing 
platform or every kind of break in that metal sphere is a weak point and mm. so they don't have very many of them so you'll have cameras and screens inside and little portholes for viewing Ah, so sometimes so you, you're just watching it as opposed to looking well it's more about filming it yeah, okay. <laughs> for later you do look through a little porthole you smoosh your face against it and can't oh, get enough that's unreal yeah but you know the majority of deep sea work now is done with remotely operated vehicles okay. and and honestly it's probably more effective ah, exciting, <laughs> no no it is it's still totally exciting okay no, especially like you have a 4k video camera rolling it feels like you're there anyway so and it what's wonderful is that you can have a group of people who know things about the environment and whereas in a submersible is sort of a pilot and maybe two scientists and there's you've got a long list of things to do for all these other people who are back on the ship and it's a very isolated experience Mm -hmm. whereas with an rov you've got people and you can be arguing oh we should pick this thing up no no go past i want to get this thing you know what is that you know so you can have lots of interactive conversations and it's way more fun to share the experience um and having said that the last trip we did had live streaming it was with the schmidt ocean institute so all of the dives are on youtube and it was so to be able to even share it like that moment as it was happening with anyone who cared to watch it that was so fun and because it was COVID time there were people that were you know really locked up essentially and so we got lots of lovely messages from people saying oh you know thank you this is really just helping me cope and expanding my horizons while I'm in this tiny kind of bubble of my own but I'm actually you know at the bottom of the sea in Western Australia so it was cool. What is the weirdest thing that you've gotten to pick up off the seafloor? Like physically or just found? Ooh, let's go just found. Okay. Might be too limiting if you have to physically <laughs> pick it up. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the most amazing moments that I remember was working off California and with a remotely operated vehicle. And there was, well, in fact, the moment was a bit later. So at the time, we just saw this like pink flatwormy thing and we're like, oh, yeah, let's pick that up. Somebody will love that. You know, we're here collecting some worms, doing something else. And so, you know, later that night, we're sort of processing all the animals and everyone had gone to bed except for me and um, my colleague. And we're working away, dissecting things. So tired, you know, it's like 11 o'clock. I'm just <laughs> exhausted. And um, and then we're like, oh, we're finished, yay! And then it was like, ah, oh, that flatworm thing, you know? Yeah. Okay, we better process it. And so we pull it out, and at the same moment, we just looked at each other, and we knew it's not a flatworm. It's this weird, what was in its own phyler at the time, wow. and it was only known at the time from a limited part of Europe. And we found one of California, oh, and that's we just. Exciting. It was so exciting. And because we didn't even say anything, we just looked at each other, looked at it, looked up again. And it was like, mind blown. <laughs> it was crazy, super exciting. So what did it end up being? Um, well, it was a thing called Xenotabella. Okay. And so it, it looks a bit like a flatworm and was a beautiful fuchsia pink colour, cool. which was cool. Um, but it's a relative of ACL flatworms and some other things. So um, by sequencing it, we understood where it fits in that family tree and it's sort of kind of closely related to or it had been hypothesized a few different places but it was kind of closely related to echinoderms and there was lots of theories about body plan evolution that we're able to kind of set straight by saying actually it fits in this part of the tree mm-hmm. so it's it's just simple it hasn't secondarily simplified and so you know we could sort of contribute to understanding that really big question which was fantastic. As always, I'm very excited. 
I'm hoping you brought along your science fun fact. I've sort of given it away already. <gasps> Doesn't matter. What was it? It was that I'm like the least likely person to go to Antarctica because <laughs> I hate the cold. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. And I'll ask a follow-up then. What were some of the coolest organisms that you got to see in Antarctica? Slug, 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 slug. Yeah. <laughs> no, there are, there are two animals that I really love down there. One was a slug, which is the one I'd gone to work on. At the time, it was called Ostradorus curgulinensis. And I now actually have a PhD student working on that same animal, which is oh, lovely. And the other was a crinoid, these feather stars, um, which was thought to be, both of them were thought to be a single species around Antarctica. And by using sequencing, we showed they're actually a whole complex of different species and we just couldn't recognise them yet without the molecular data. So, yeah. And my final question is kind of of the benefit to myself as well, but is there any particular sea slug species that you recommend we go and Google as soon as we stop listening to this podcast so we can look at how cute they are. (laughs) Oh, look, I think you can just type in the word sea slug or nudibranch and there will be way more than you can ever process. There is a particular kind of thing that goes around all the time called Bowie Branchia. So it's a picture of David Bowie in an outfit that matches a nudibranch. (laughs) That's kind of fun. People never get sick of that one. Fantastic. (laughs) I can't wait to look that up. Thank you so much for joining us in the podcast, Nerida. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. This episode, as always, was recorded in the wonderful science hub that is Western Australia and Particle is powered by Scitech.